So, uh, you know, I mean, we always start these discussions with something that is, uh, you know, off the beaten path. Uh, I have to ask you both what you think of, you know, the idea that uh, in this uh, in the context of this current Trump indictment, uh, that Axios's explanation uh, really works. And I will now read it to you. Renting a car is not illegal, they say in between the lines, nor is buying a ski mask or mapping out a street surveillance cameras. But if those steps were taken in furtherance of a plot to rob a bank, they may be listed as overt acts in a conspiracy indictment. <laughs> is that not the most blatant, ridiculous spin in favor of the idea that Donald Trump's tweets telling people to watch television can be considered as indict as under indictment? Well, I mean that the tweets, yeah, that's I mean that that's a push there. I mean the 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 fact of the matter is like whether it's ridiculous or not is going to be tested by a couple of juries in Fulton County and 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 DC because that's what they've got. They've got not in the in the Jack Smith indictment, they've got conspiracy charges, which that's very much a part of it. You can do lots of legal things in the pursuit of an illegal conspiracy. Um, that's 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 a part of the the case, which makes them harder to prove. Um, and then in the in the Fulton County case, you've got RICO, which Andy McCarthy does invaluable work on on this. Andy's an old old friend of mine, and I take him to be operating in like you know in good faith and and seriously, and, and as a, obviously a federal prosecutor with lots of um, convictions under under his belt and you know his view on the Fulton County case is you know Rico is obviously Rico's for organized crime and it's built around the enterprise itself you know not not the acts that the enterprise commits so the criminal enterprise itself um, and you know that that fits really well for the you know Gambino crime family or the Latin Kings but the idea that you know Rudy Giuliani and and Kanye's PR flack and Donald Trump and a and a and a grab bag of you know half crazy marginal attorneys is a criminal enterprise is going to be a big stretch for for those guys to prove. I mean the 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 one thing I don't know how seriously you're asking this question, Ben, but the the one thing that I think you can go too far like these are obviously these are unprecedented uses of the statutes. Uh, in Georgia, a little less so. There are there are more straightforward statutes for prosecuting uh, interference like this in an election. But certainly in the federal case, these these are stretches for a lot of these statutes for RICO and the RICO part of it in Georgia, in addition to the other charges. But they're also unprecedented acts. I mean, you could argue that they're, you know, that they're a matter of degree different from the kind of, and we've talked about this on the podcast, going back to Diebold in 2004, you could act that they're you could, you know, um, argue that they're escalations on, you know, um, election denying and, you know, politicking and um, and kabuki that's, you know, been, been around for a long time. But, you know, if they're stretches of the criminal statutes, they're also dealing with a very, you know, unique fact pattern. And so it feels like in all of these cases, you've got like obvious ch chicanery running up against a really complicated legal case and questionable indictments. And it's going to be up to a bunch of juries. Um, and who the hell knows? I'm not an expert in criminal law or, or RICO or, or any of those kind of things. Uh, so I, I can't speak to the complexity of the case that the Fulton County DA is bringing. But I thought for the longest time, until we knew about the, the documents case that was being brought, that what transpired in Georgia in the you know, bet between election day uh, 2020 and January 6th was was in some ways like the most clear cut case of bad behavior where there's recordings involved of you know, then President Trump leaning on state officials to you know what would it find 10,000 more votes something along those lines um, and you know we're talking about a state where there was a you know Republican governor who had been supported by Trump in his first run you know, Republican Secretary of State, where it was kind of, you know, down the line, state government was was controlled by you know, people that were largely sympathetic to the president. 
And to lean, to lean on those or to, to make the case that you were cheated out of an election where plenty of other Republicans were able to win down ballot um, and, and say that there was this grand conspiracy in place. I think in some ways it kind of goes back to the, the framing that progressives have had for Trump all along was that, you know, on one hand, he's this, you know, incredible imbecile. But on the other hand, he is this galactic genius who is able to coordinate uh, across nation states to, you know, engage in sort of a family that is pulling the strings in Russia and in the financial system and in all these other places. It's got to be one or the other that these guys don't generally know what they're doing when it comes to sort of the, the blocking and tackling of politics or that these guys are, you know, tremendously, you know, Machiavellian operators. And I think, I think my, my read is pretty clear. It's more of the former of that, you know, in as much as there are sort of norms and what's a smash mouth game that they didn't come up in it and they didn't observe mm-hmm. those, but this did really seem what happened in Georgia again in the pre January six, which was awful in so many ways that what happened in Georgia with recordings with credible Republicans who were being, you know, branded as, you know, disloyal or not doing what they needed to do, that that was like a pretty clear cut thing of trying to tamper with the results of an election. And I don't know what criminal statute, if any. And I think that's part of the challenge with all of this is, you know, is is trying to jawbone somebody to find 10,000 votes. I don't know what that crime is in the code. You'd hope that it would be illegal, but I think we're going to parse all of that out in the, you know, I'd say probably more years than months, but I think it was Axios, going back to Axios, that updated their calendar for the primary schedule versus Trump's court schedule. And he's got, what, now four criminal indictments and three sort of civil cases pending. And, you know, is there is there a pile on, you know, does, is there a, you know, AG in one of these other states or, a, you know, DA in one of these other, you know, major metro counties that says, hey, I want my, you know, I want my five minutes too, the same way that, you know, the Atlanta DA or the New York City DA has had. So it's, uh, I think it's just an unfortunate situation all around that it's come to this. Yeah, the one thing I'm trying to figure out too, just to just to touch on a, I think, under-commented part of this is, you know, how much we're all Twitter lawyers, right? We're all, I mean, we're doing a, a damned presidential election podcast and about 70% of the content is about organized crime statutes. So that's probably a bad sign, right? But I'm I'm trying to figure out how much of this, someone who knows a little bit about white collar crime and the abuses, you know, from the sort of McDonald kind of charges on down, how much of it is that the 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 Dem, you know, partisans and the Justice Department and, you know, New York, you know, New York District Attorney and all these guys are stretching the law to the absolute breaking point, what some people have called Trump law, you know, to 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 get Donald Trump and how much of it is just that no this is how a lot of paper crimes and a lot of white collar law works and a lot of it's really fuzzy and it's designed to be fuzzy and amorphous and a lot of it is just about the sort of overwhelming power of the system to nail you know the people who are identified as being worth nailing and and you know when that kind of when that set of laws and and those sort of fuzzy paper crimes run into the public consciousness the level that indicting a former and perhaps future president makes it run into the public public consciousness you know how much is it just us as twitter lawyers all of a sudden becoming aware of the fact that a lot of prosecutions are 5149 propositions or amorphous or vague in this way again none of this is none of this it goes without saying i think at this point is to excuse any of the actual behavior that underlies the charges. But the reason the laws are so tricky, in addition to just being an unprecedented set of fact, you know, might just be because the white collar law is tricky in this country. It's not it's not grand larceny. It's not a sexual assault. It's not a murder with a body and a weapon. You know, it's it's paper crimes. Look, I, I got to be honest. I just think that these I, I find this entirely ridiculous. I think that this is a I mean, <laughs> We have a former president of the United States now who is being charged under so many different uh, jurisdictions, so many different laws, so many different penalties. The general takeaway, I think, for your random normie voter 
a topic that we have touched on many times on this podcast is they're just out to get Donald Trump. Like they just want to get him. It doesn't matter how they get him. They just want to get him. And to me, that's a bad thing. I mean, I, I like, I like rifle shots. I like the kind of, uh, you know, indication of like, we have one really, really solid case and we're using it against a former president because it's so clear that he has violated the law in this particular circumstance. I do not see anything here that would make me uh, have any faith, any kind of faith uh, that the justice system is behaving in a way that is appropriate. Yeah. And I mean, so part of it's a, again, it's a kind of it's coordination problems all the way down. I mean, the brag indictment is the weakest it came first. It set the precedent that they're going to stretch, you know, stretch the law overcharge 179 counts or whatever it was. I think it was 43 or whatever. You know, that's the weakest, you know, but it, as as everything with this guy, it's like everything is precision engineered about him, about his personality, about the weak points that he attacks in the system to identify those weak points and the sort of failure points and the points of low public trust and um and uh and you know kayfabe and all all of the pieces of the american political system of the party system of the primary calendar of the media he's just precision engineered he's like the thing in that old kurt russell movie he's just precision engineered to undermine and exploit all the weak points in the system that he didn't you know everyone talks about how he's a He's a um a symptom and not a and not a cause and you know there's there's a lot of truth to that so but but in in the case of the overwhelming indictments I mean you're right as a matter of fact that it's almost like the more the better for him right if if it looks like a pile on then that becomes you know the thing in in the voters mind so you get this really weak indictment to start sets the tone you get a Florida indictment on the documents case that's actually a hundred percent airtight I mean he did it talked about doing it. He's guilty. I mean, I feel comfortable saying that he broke federal law, but you've got a Florida jury pool, right? South Florida jury pool against a celebrity, biggest celebrity on the planet Earth, right? That's not a guaranteed conviction, even though he did it, right? 100% did it. And then you've got these two election interference indictments that we've already wasted a lot of time, you know, talking about, I shouldn't say wasted, but you, you take my point. And, you know, it's it's like, what does it all add up to? And on the other hand, you've got Every single change from the White House in the way they describe Hunter and Joe's interaction on on this tin pot dictator, you know, racketeering scheme, you know, just makes the moral equivalence between these two ancient men, you know, closer and closer. So, you know, it's a it's a huge problem. But I I do want to, you know, I take your point, Ben, and I see where you're coming from. I mean, I, I think I'm. I'm probably in a little bit of a different place than you are in this, but let's cut through all the 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 chaff on this and just get down to one sort of critical thing, which is, you know, it's still going to be a mat like whether they're trying to go after him or not, it's still going to be a massive, massive problem that a the Republican candidate's going to spend the entire you know calendar in court or preparing to go into court, and b there's going to be not one, not two, not three, but potentially four constitutional crises of various different kinds uh, on the offing if he gets elected. You know, a couple of them are going to be, you know, the easy ones are the ones where he quashes the DOJ case, right, before it's gone to trial. That's going to be the, that's the easy stuff for the future of the American Republic. When the elected president orders the DOJ to, to stop a prosecution against him. The hard stuff is going to be state law, state election law, running up against a sitting president of the United States. And we joke now about, you know, running running the country from a jail cell, uh, you know, but it's like, I mean, you cut through all that stuff. If it's, you know, whether they're wrongful prosecutions or not, it's a huge practical problem for a voter, for somebody who doesn't want Joe Biden to be reelected. It's a huge, huge, huge practical problem. And I just haven't seen any evidence that anyone is and a- a- any massive voters has brought that into their calculus. And I think that that's the that's the great point, Dan, is, you know, no matter what you think about the the lawsuits, I think, look, I think that they weaken Donald Trump as a general election candidate. And I, I think that I don't think that swing voters, you know, whatever whatever they are or you know, whatever flavor they're going to take in 2024, 
are going to say, you know, hey, I'm going to give this guy that's got all these legal problems the benefit of the doubt, especially because what Donald Trump as a president is, we know what that looks like. In 2016, we didn't. It wasn't priced in. And people had more of a the mark. The market kind of knew what Hillary was going to look like. And it was you know, the, the second change election in three, you know, hope and change in 2008. And then, you know, eight years later, make America great again. I think that my perspective is that my concern is there's a critical mass of Republicans that would rather go down with the ship uh, to own the libs and own the media, uh, where you've got a candidate who is basically burning cash, campaign cash, as fast as he can, paying his personal legal bills, um, that this race is going to be, even when they have the debate next week, it's, it's next week, right? Not the week after. Uh, but when they have the when they have the debate in uh, Milwaukee, even if Donald Trump isn't on the stage, it's going to be all about him. It, this whole campaign is going to be all about him until there's a different Republican nominee, and they'll still probably get a ton of questions about Donald Trump. But I, I just don't understand. Even even if you, I, I am not of this opinion because I think that there. Are, I think I agree with Dan. I think that the documents case is is pretty close to airtight. Uh, but even if if Donald Trump, the things he did weren't illegal and I'm not a criminal lawyer, but I, you know, I, I think they're highly unethical uh, around you know January 6th, that basically the whole period after election day of 2020. At, at what point is, yes, this is a, is a novel approach from, from law enforcement and from you know, the security state or however people want to label it. But we also haven't had a president who has been, who has basically questioned uh, the the transfer of power in this way before? So uh, you know it's while he may be a symptom of larger political trends, he is also sort of a a vector of what's happening in this period as far as what the norms of American politics look like. And even if you want to say that he's a response to stuff that Democrats had done, and yeah, no one's hands are clean. No one's hands are clean. And you know, Dan's right to talk about the treatment of Hunter Biden. But again, we'll add out that Hunter Biden is the son and not the president. And we still have not, you know, conclusively, you know, tied it to the president, though there's plenty of smoke around it in the uh, documents that the House Oversight Committee has produced. But is this, are these really the two guys that we want to spend the next, you know, 18 months or whatever talking about is this is this is the the best that, that we can do. And it's really in both cases, just because it, it's, it's, it's like a holy war that both sides, you know, the religion is Trump and you're either against its spread or you're for its spread and nothing else seems to matter. And I, it's just sort of baffling to me. So let's talk for a minute about the uh, documents and everything else that's come out uh, of the House Oversight Committee. And uh, and also, obviously, you know, related to uh, the this lawsuit, the decision by Merrick Garland uh, to name David Weiss as a special counsel. I'm curious as to your reactions to it, because it, it, it seems to me that there's kind of two elements of it. On the one hand, you're naming someone special counsel who has already given this same uh, person a slap on the wrist, has already shown themselves willing to do that uh, in a way that, you know, was disturbing to a lot of Republicans. The flip side of that is you're still naming a special counsel, which means that it's something that for, you know, your average American, uh, they will pay a lot more attention to that uh, than uh, they would perhaps any other kind of step being taken against Hunter. What are your thoughts about how this whole plays, the whole thing plays out and uh, what people will think on it? Yeah, so the so it's a, it's a, it's a dirty dirty deal and we've talked about I've talked about what I call kind of scandal inflation. But what happened in that courthouse with the plea deal was like, you know, one of the five worst things that a president has been involved in in the history of the country. And it's amazing that it's a you know, I don't know, A7 in the New York Times, you know, five paragraphs, move on, kind of a story, and not, you know, Watergate 2, which by, you know, most objective measures, it is. I mean, you know, you, you talk all you want about no direct, I mean, 
it's pretty clear that a lot of money moved around a lot of people named biden that that there was a there was a concerted effort to hide the source of those payments and the destinations we've got you know a guy who is you know directly involved in those business transactions telling a lot of dirt on the president of the united states that he either you know was it was complicit in it or implicitly knew what was happening um it's a massive massive scandal and this piece of it is a massive abuse. I mean, I don't want to undersell it. It's a massive abuse of the Department of Justice. And the Weiss bit is just, a, you know, a, a cherry on the cake. But it's taking place in this sort of, I don't, I don't want to use a $5 word, but this kind of discursive environment where, you know, with the press and the way that political partisans talk about this, the incentives that the players have, you know, the moving pieces behind, you know, if, if Biden you know, were to resign, for instance, or if Biden were to step aside for the nomination. You know, we've talked about the Kamala problem. You know, we've we've we, we, we've talked about um, we haven't talked so much about, but certainly others have talked about this just sort of increasing shamelessness and how and really Trump wasn't Trump was like so many other things. He accelerated it. But really, this kind of post Franken, post Al Franken effect of like every decision to resign under pressure from your political and partisan enemies is a mistake and you should just brazen it out. You know, you could, you, you could locate it at the access Hollywood tape. You could locate it wherever you want, but there's this, you know, this thing that's happening where the idea that you should just res re resign out of a sense of shame or the greater good of your co-partisans or the greater good, God forbid of the country, um, or because you're a, you're a political liability just seems to have disappeared both as a matter of personal integrity and as a matter of, um, as a matter of partisanship, hyper-partisanship and, and negative partisanship, right? The incentives have changed. So you've got what a, on the substance is a very dirty deal. And like I said, it's one of the five or six worst things a president has done. And there's some really bad ones, you know, in, in, in history. And it's, it's, it's certainly, you know, proved that that family, you know, as if there were any doubt is really dirty and that the president, you know, again, they've changed their statement on it. They've drawn the fence narrower and narrower five, six times now. And, you know, who, we all kind of know that there's going to, there's going to be further shoes to drop. And so on the substance, it's this terrible thing, but the kind of permission structure, you know, use whatever cliche you want, the kind of partisan environment which it's taking place sort of ensures that not only will it be like a fifth page story, but that it's probably not going to change any of the players in our national political drama. It's just going to make, you know, just going to make things worse. Related to this is, you know, this sort of open question about has the media finally turned on Joe Biden? Because you saw, you know, so many different elements of this. You saw the the Maureen Dowd column. You saw the increased attention to what was going on with Hunter. You know, you've seen kind of the, the mainstream, quote unquote, legacy media actually kind of starting to say, you know, hey, maybe this guy's a bad president. Maybe he's actually corrupt in a way that they haven't really before. Does this actually represent a significant move on their part? Or is it just kind of a, I don't know, they've given themselves permission to go along with uh, the idea that this is, you know, an unacceptable administration to a certain extent? Um, is it something that will matter when it comes to 2024? I think the wagons will circle when it, when it comes down to it. But, and you guys are, you know, obviously both closer to the, sort of the media world than I am, but the, as the Hunter Biden story has unfolded, it's become, I think, more interesting. And, you know, the, the newspapers and TV, it was a profit-making enterprise to sell eyeballs. And even, you know, even if it's something that's it's cutting against your own team, so to speak, it is the news of the day. It is interesting. Um, so, you know, you, you would hope at some point out of shame, though, you know, realize that's a naive hope because there's plenty of times where things should be covered and uh, are not. But it does it does seem like that now if there are bad stories, again, just based on what happened with Hunter and you know, the Dowd column uh, and, you know, be remiss and not pointing out that I guess uh, Ruth Marcus had a article uh, yesterday at the uh, Washington Post questioning whether yet mm -hmm. another case against you know the president was was one too many 
so now we have the, you know, we can take the even Ruth Marcus phrase on our bingo boards and uh, put something down there. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I, I think that, yes, the, I, the there's no doubt that the, the National Press Corps leans left and was talking to, uh, you know, another friend of mine, a journalist earlier today um, about, you know, how many, how many Republican, you know, or sort of conservative journalists that came out of that world that, you know, when they hit the big time, you know, sort of their uh, you know, viewpoint changes, but again, it's, it's still a business for those guys and it's something to to drive the narrative and drive storylines. But I think once the Trump cases get rolling, it's going to be the, you know, the biggest national showcase since you know, the OJ trial. No, so that's, least, yeah, uh, I mean, that's, I mean, that's definitely something that's possible. I mean, we're going to see, you know, so many of these cases, you know, just the timeline, I mean, you know, I, happening coincident with super tuesday and the republican convention and all these other things i mean it's going to be crazy uh but you know at the same time i i wonder you know does that matter at this stage with a, a group of candidates who are trying to very you know very much position themselves as the alternative uh to donald trump i mean you know we uh we see the polling numbers, the sinking numbers from Ron DeSantis, the rising numbers potentially from Chris Christie, especially in uh, New Hampshire, and maybe Tim Scott. Um, and we see them headed toward a debate a week from now uh, in Milwaukee, where, you know, I mean, just yesterday I was on with Brett Baer on his podcast, and he said definitively that he does not believe that Donald Trump is going to show up, that the people close to him uh, you know, both off the record and on, you know, have given every indication that Donald Trump doesn't think he has to debate, that he thinks he's so far ahead that he doesn't need to participate. What do we think about that? What do we think about the fact that, you know, he won't engage uh, or he won't uh, be on the stage to engage with, you know, people like Mike Pence, like Chris Christie, who have telegraphed the fact that they're planning to go after him, hammer and tongs, um, you know, what do we think? Uh, do we call him a coward? Yeah, I mean, I look, I think I do. I totally believe Donald Trump is going to skip the debate next week. Yeah, I think that's highly plausible. Do I think he's going to skip the debate after that? No bleeping way. Because you just know, I mean, I think this is like <laughs> famous last words, right? You don't try and forget this if if I turn out to be wrong. But if he skips this debate, you know, they're going to pe people are going to take some knocks at him. There's also going to be some really gross fealty expressed among some of the candidates. But people are going to take some swings at him, like you said. And, he's not gonna, and, and yeah, and he's exactly and he's not going to be able to stay away from the next one. Um, it's just in his nature, like the scorpion. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't think if he starts taking hits, I, I, I you know, he's not going to be able to, he's not going to be able to refrain from getting into the mix. And, you know, people forget though, too, someone was reminding me of it. Actually, I think it was, um, it was an interview with your guy, Ben Shane Gillis, where he was talking about, they were, he, he was, he was doing Dana Carvey and David Spade's podcast. Yeah. Yes, he was. And, uh, yes. He was talking about, which I just forgot because it's just like the wave of news cycles during the, but that, you know, Trump's Trump had some bad debates. He's had more than one in over 16 and, and 20, especially the, the debate against Rand Biden Paul where the, ugly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just, I mean, even in the general, he, he, he lost a debate pretty. His wife looks like a to, dog. <laughs> <laughs> to, but he, I mean, but he lost a general election debate to Joe Biden member because Everyone said, and I think I think it was right at the time that he would. His biggest mistake was he wouldn't let Joe Biden talk. If you let this guy stutter and stumble, you know, you you actually come out looking ahead. Instead, he let Biden look like the statesman because he couldn't, you know, he couldn't shut his mouth. And I think you're going to see a lot of the same dynamics. Trump cannot abide being mocked, <laughs> um, and so you know the Trump will not be mocked. And um, so I, you know, I don't think it's going to become any kind of any kind of trend. And it remains to be seen who on that stage, and again, I feel like we have this conversation week in and week out, beyond Chris Christie, is going to be willing to actually land blows. I, I think that, uh, and I know I sent it around to you guys earlier, that uh, Jim Garrity had something over at National Review today, uh, talking about how DeSantis' numbers continue trending the, the wrong way. And 
basically, I think Gary's point was, what's he have to lose by going all in against Trump at this point? I mean, he's he's already dead to to, to President Trump. Can so, I, can I just interject something? Jim Garrity sure. has been has been consistently one of the worst political prognosticators of easily the last ten years. He's been wrong on virtually every prediction that he's ever made about what success entails. And I don't say this with any animosity, any like personal animosity towards him. I, don't, I barely know him, uh, but like his his prediction sort of gauge is one of those ones that like it's it's almost Bill Crystal level. Where when he says something, I'm like, oh, the reverse is about to happen. So um, I, I would just say, I actually think Ron DeSantis could win this debate, could win this debate, like running away, like could could look awesome on that debate stage in a way that he hasn't had the opportunity to before. And if that happens, let's say, you know, let's say Ron performs well, meaning, you know, uh, exceeds expectations. People come away saying he was the clear winner of the debate. He bumps up five points, you know, that kind of thing in uh, in the debate scale. Does that make it more likely that Trump jumps in to Dan's point in order to just like clamp down on the possibility that someone is going to challenge him? Or, you know, the same to Chris Christie. Like if Chris Christie comes out and just looks like an awesome debater and is able to like hold his own and uh and really you know send a message jumps up five points in the polls does that make it more likely that trump jumps in or does he continue to try to dodge it in a way that is like kind of sending a message maybe he's a little scared of these people i i think it makes him more likely to engage but for completely different reasons i, I don't think that and you know, feel free to disagree. I don't think that Donald Trump is this, you know, perfect calibrator of political strategy. Right? You know, whatever you may think of Mitch McConnell or pick pick your politician, Nancy Pelosi, that is trying to play five or six moves down the chessboard. I think what's more likely is that Donald Trump has to be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. And if the attention is not on him, and unless he, you know, unless he pulls his WWE thing and pops out of the coffin on. Uh, you know, on Twitter, I guess, you know, X, the artist formerly known as Twitter, that unless he starts, you know, giving live running commentary during the debate on Twitter, the only people that are going to see that are the journalists who are on truth and the people that are already voting for him that mm -hmm. are on truth. And I, I just I just don't think he can abide not being the central character in the story. So his own narcissism is a, one reason for that. But there's another reason, which is that the you know and, and the benefit of trump the appeal of trump is trump to his voters right it's not the things he does or you know the ideology he represents or the team he brings with him or the patriotism or how they how he makes you feel about yourself it's the act it's you 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 know you go you go see Frank Sinatra for Frank Sinatra not for the you know the the brass section right and so you know <laughs> so if so if if Trump is going to command the att continued attention and adoration of his audience, then he needs to show up. It's as simple as that. Here's the here's the thing that I think is going to actually end up happening because of this. He's going to skip this debate. Someone is going to emerge from this debate better off than they were before. Like I I don't. I, I mean, you know, I can't predict who that's going to be, whether it's going to be Ron, whether it's going to be Chris, whether it's going to be Doug Burgum. You know, somebody is going to emerge better. Um, and it's not going to be Vivek, by the way. It's going to be just his act is just so tired. It's the same level with him. Um, but someone will. And that, I think, is going to bother him and bother him in a way that he feels the need to, to your point, Dan, kind of sweep in. And just play whack-a-mole and like knock that person down. Um, and look, you know, I I understand that you know there's this feeling that all roads lead to Trump and that it's just inevitable that he's the nominee, that no one can challenge him, no one can take him on. But my feeling is, I think he is much more vulnerable than than any of the current wisdom suggests. I think that he is actually 
someone that can be taken out. I just don't know whether this field has someone in it who has the capacity and ability to do that job. Yeah, I, I, I will agree with you in one sense. I think he's it's a classic example of somebody who is sort of dictionary brittle, right? Like he's very hard. His numbers are hard. And his support level, his, 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 you know, basement seems to be hard, just as the ceiling does, but it's brittle. And not to say, it's going to sound a little maybe hysterical, but I think that the closest comp about both the, the promise and the difficulties here is the Wagner Group coup in Russia, the, the, the aborted coup, right? <laughs> because... I was, I was going to make a comparison to the Indianapolis Colts. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a little more, a little more bread and butter. But just because, you know, coup. I mean, if you if you look at anyone who like is familiar with this or, or has looked at it, like coups seem impossible right until the moment that they happen, and the toppling of. I mean, you, Khomeini or, or sorry, um, uh, who's the guy in Libya? The Shah. Yeah, the Shah, or the why can't I remember the the poor bastard in Libya who got tracked? Gaddafi, Gaddafi, yeah, right, yeah, yeah, Gaddafi, yeah. So these things, these things look like they're impossible until the moment they happen. So there's a sense in which I agree with you. There's certainly a lot of reason. There's a lot. You think there's every reason in the world for the entire field to turn on him, but the the lingering sort of sense is that you play nice with him because even if you don't. You know, if you're not there to, you know, sweep up as voters for your own purposes, whether it's hawking books on cable news or running for a Senate seat next cycle or trying to be a successor, you know, whatever it is, you, the, the, the thinking is still sweep up as voters by playing nice with him and condescending. Right. But as soon as they get the sense, if they get the sense that there might not be, a, I don't know, a Republican Party a functioning Republican Party left, you know, in the wake of 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 this or as soon as the numbers, if they do start to turn, you know, in a serious way and he's not really neck and neck or coin flip with Biden, you know, then these things can happen really quick. Or to your point, Ben, as soon as somebody shows up and delivers some entertainment value and a, and a kind of um, a kind of entertainment product that a, that segment of the voting base wants from these debates and from their candidates, you know, that can change very quickly. Um, I, I think I don't think we have any reason to think it will. So I know I realize I'm making a kind of fine grained distinction there, but that's kind of the point, right? Like, the, the, you know, he's been tremendously resilient. You said yourself, Ben, you think the more indictments, the better for him almost at this point. I'm kind of putting words in your mouth, but more or less the pile on effect yeah. helps him. Um, you know, so we haven't seen any evidence that your instinct is right, but as a structural matter, these things can turn very quickly. I think nobody should, nobody should become sanguine about that. Um, but it, it's certainly that, you know, there's definitely room for those kind of black swan events. It's just hard for me to, to see that happening with the way the things are now. If you're talking about the, the Wagner thing, you know, the, the play in that metaphor, who are sort of the unhappy elites that actually, you know, because you know, say what you will about the, you know, the power of the swamp, but these guys don't have like a, you know, militia or, you know, huge, you know, these aren't these uh, oligarchs that have, you know, tons of money at their command to influence politics. Um, yeah, I, I think the other thing too. Like a decent chef in Moscow. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> not as successful as like a decent chef. In Moscow, yeah, exactly, and but I, and I think the other thing too is that I, I think you you mentioned two blocks of voters, Dan, that I don't think are very largely overlapping, and that's people that care about the future of the Republican Party or about some sort of ideological center right movement or even a sort of like not progressive party versus the people that just want entertainment or just want Donald Trump to say the thing. If you want the guy to say the thing, if he's the if he's your TikTok guy that you put two dollars in, the the Trump could just sit there all day saying "Make America Great Again" or whatever oh, catchphrase you want. Great. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, but at some point it's going to require. I don't think that these guys have probably the same entertainment value. May, maybe Christie can at least be entertaining. So at that point, then I think you need to play into the gladiatorial spectacle, and you got to hit the guy. And I still have not seen anybody really do that 
Does anybody want to win or do they just want Trump to lose and that they inherit it? Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of what I'm saying. So so the so the irony of that, of course, and I've made this point before and I love to make it, is that the guy who came in and bailed out Trump early in 2016 was Chris Christie, right? He was the first guy to get behind a podium, cue Curb Your Enthusiasm music, and endorse Trump after he dropped out. And you've always Chris had Christie those... has no mouth and he must scream. <laughs> yeah. And you've oh, you've always had those guys who are willing to bail them out. So when I talk about the people who care about the future of the party, or at least a future that's usable for their personal ambitions, if not, you know, their sense of whatever institutional pride or loyalty to the GOP. Um, I'm talking about the candidates. I'm not talking about the voters. I, there, there are there are some voters who certainly care about the Republican Party. I, I don't think it's a majority that's of, of GOP voters. That's safe to say. But I mean, you know, there there could and should be, I think, by all rational rights, an understanding that the best prisoners dilemma strategy in a debate is to for everybody right to pile on Trump because you know to be the man you got to beat the man. But instead, what has always happened and what we have every reason to think will happen, even though it's not the optimal prisoner's dilemma strategy, is that one or two, and I'm looking at Vivek and a couple others, will stand for Trump. I can't believe I just used that word, but they will, you know, they they, they will serve as the stand in as the prop. Can, can I just interject something here? You know, just as a podcast, uh, I, I just want to say. My position editorially is that Vivek is not a serious candidate. Um, he is an unserious person who is, you know, clearly if you look into even just sort of the 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 you know base level kind of research into who he is and how he made his money, he's a ripoff artist. He is somebody who I don't think should be taken seriously as a presidential candidate. I think that Ben Carson was a more serious presidential candidate. I think that Herman Cain was a more serious presidential candidate than Vivek. Um, and I don't think that we should actually treat him as a presidential candidate. I think we should treat him as essentially a stalking horse for the Trump campaign. Oh, yes. Uh, and someone who is is frankly willing to say just about anything uh, in order to get uh, attention. Um, and and frankly, I, I also will say this. I don't believe in electing vegetarians. I don't like them. I, I think that they're bad for the country. Uh, I think if you can't eat the corn dog at uh, the Iowa State Fair, that you should not be president. Uh, and I'm putting that <laughs> putting that flag in the ground. <laughs> eat I, the corn dog. Dad. As a heuristic, as a heuristic, I agree with you. And look, the big difference between Ben Carson and and uh, Herman Cain and Vivek Ramaswamy again is that those two guys wanted to be president of the United States. And Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't. It's not, it's, it's it's not it's not his primary motivation. I think that's unfortunately increasingly true of a number of major political candidates, especially on the GOP side, but on both sides. And um, you know that's a huge problem. So again, I think while it's in everybody's best sort of mathematical interest to you know pile on Trump, there will always be somebody who screws up the prisoner's dilemma and rats out on the other guys and, and, uh, and, and basks in, in, you know, Trump's abstention, temporary abstention anyway, from bashing them and so, everybody to, else will suffer. Let me pose something, Ben, you were, you were a speechwriter at a you know national level. If, if, if this is happening, what, why wouldn't somebody say, I want to break out and be different in this debate. And the way I'm going to do it is going to be the guy that goes at Trump. And when you have a Ramaswamy then that does that, you know, why why wouldn't that why wouldn't the more aggressive candidate just look over him, smirk with a look of disdain on his face and say, "Hey, go get your shine box." I mean, well, see, yeah. that's as, I mean, to be honest, that's what I'm hoping. Uh, just as a viewer, I would hope that Chris Christie would do that to him. You know, uh, I haven't seen any indication that he's going to, but maybe. I mean, that's that's the approach that I would use. Is to say, you know, okay, well, you're the you're you're the little mini me. Well, I'm going to go after you because you're here on the stage. I can't go after the other guy, but I can go after you by proxy. Uh, and I mean, I, I'm. And in some ways, 
And in some ways, wasn't that almost kind of the, the Trump debate thing? And was the, you know, he picked off the, the Brooklyn brawlers before he went after the champ when he was going mm-hmm. after Rand Paul and those kind of guys. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'm not remembering it correctly, but I think he was kind of fighting with the undercard guys first to build up his cred. What, you no, know, he definitely was. Cause it, uh, and he was almost boosting Carson and, uh, and he was avoiding Cruz uh, to a large extent uh, during those early debates. So, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that, that we could see play out. Um, with the time that we have left, uh, gentlemen, uh, just uh, uh, one last thing. I I had a conversation uh, earlier today uh, with Will Hurd, uh, presidential candidate, uh, former congressman, uh, and someone who's obviously not going to be uh, elected president. And I asked him, you know, about what, you know, why you run when you're at that kind of 1% level. Uh, and he gave me, I don't know, a polite response. What can be done to get rid of these one percent folks? You know, like not not talking obviously the one percent that we like, the rich people, you know, in the, in the country who are who are great and whose uh, money trickles down to all of us. The one percenters in the presidential race. What can be done to push them out? The Francis Suarez is the uh, Perry Johnsons. You know, the people who are just not going to have any kind of hold within this field uh, and and not going to be able to make any kind of second debate stage. Is there any mechanism that can be deployed to make sure that this field shrinks? Sure. Raise the threshold on participation in the debates. Yeah, I think that's right. I I mean, I think that's something that's that's within the RNC's power. And when, when is the last time that we had a somebody who, who won a nomination who came from zero or one percent to to be the guy or or you know in Hillary's place to, to be you know, the, the the woman it's it's not a I just don't think it's a starter you know, Trump's success notwithstanding it's not a starter level job but he was a national figure for you know business and media and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I mean he started out about around uh, uh, five or six percent, I think. Yeah, so I think that that point, if if you can't roll in to Iowa and New Hampshire with even say five percent, some sort of threshold of you have a faction within the party that is behind you, I, I just don't think it's a, I don't think it's a worthwhile thing to crowd the stage and. I think what the the RNC is doing is is by and large smart. I wish they do more of it. Um, now I, I think it's going to be interesting and helpful. I'm glad that Pence will have you know cleared the the bar. You know, if only just maybe barely on the the fundraising side, because I think I'm curious to see. You know, are we going to see a different Mike Pence? Um, but yeah, I agree. It's I think it's these are just sort of distraction gadfly. I mean, at, at some level. And look, I, I respect you know Will Hurd's service to the country, you know, serving the CIA and all that kind of stuff. But at some point, what's the difference between him and uh, you know the these sort of gadfly candidates that you know? Uh, I, you know John, the, I'll, I'll be quite honest. I think that you could probably get the same level of polling that he does. So yeah, <laughs> well, he's got a good, good, you know, classic American name, John. You know, but I so uh, <laughs> I I think the reality is I'm a. I'm a, I don't know, a small R Republican, not a small D Democrat on this question. The reality is that the, the, the primary contests themselves and ordinary voters have too much power in the, in the party selection process that it has been. Counterproductive. Oh, 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 wait, wait, yeah. wait. Are, are you, are you delving into Jonah Goldberg territory here, Dan? I think I think the I absolutely think the party should be much stronger than they are. This is one way for them to start negotiating that, right? Is to is to put some tighter limits. I mean, we've I, I've said before though that I think the the unintended consequences of some of the the rules that they've put in place with how Burgum and and Ramaswamy have been able to scam the 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 fundraising stuff, and you know, it's going to be a work in progress. But I absolutely think that it should be more like a kind of guild system. It should be more like who are the interests that the party represents. And and I'm not just talking about, you know, smoke-filled rooms with a couple of billionaire plutocrats. I mean, who are the actual working, real, large blocks of voters with different 
issues that they care about and different things you know (laughs) yeah i'm not i mean i'm not talking about a star chamber but you can there there should be i mean and and this is the way it was done for you know 150 years there should be people who are engaged at a higher level look the 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 best example of it is um is what the labor party did in britain right they they made it so that in the interest of lowercase d democratic reform they made it so that you could join the labor party and have a say essentially in in rule setting uh for whatever five quid five pounds whatever it is don't check check my details on wikipedia and what you got out of that was jeremy corbyn and a jeremy corbyn leadership right so you know there's i'm on record i've written for 10 15 years that voting should be slightly harder than it is that you should have to prove at some basic level that you even give kind of a shit <laughs> yeah, only yeah, only military should be allowed. No, no, it's more like it's more like no Australian ballots where they mail people, you know, b- you know, ballots and you have to, you know, tick a box and participate. Like I just no, no, just make view, some uh, No, no, no. I, I mean to 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 actually uh, go along with you. Uh, my view is that if you work for the government or if you accept government largesse, meaning welfare, that you cannot vote. That's been my view for for 20 years. It's funny you say that because it was one of the most sensible things that Chris Christie said. He was in an editorial meeting with the National Review years and years ago was that, um, you know, he was negotiating with the big public sector unions in New Jersey. And I asked him some question about whether public sector unions should be outlawed, which I believed at the time. And I still, I guess, kind of do. And he said, I don't think they should be outlawed. I just think they should have a real adversary across the table from them. and, you know, there's there's something to that. You don't want to get I don't I'm not for res, like actual formal restrictions on voting. I would never support that. That's, you know, that's hardcore anti-democratic. But I am for all kinds of informal sort of very low bars that just ensure that you have a pulse and are able to, you know, rub your belly and pat your head at the same time <laughs> before you're, you know, you're asked to weigh in. And again, you can do all this stuff informally. You don't have to have rules about who can and can't vote. Um, I just think, yeah, I think the parties need to be a lot stronger. I think, um, you know, the entertainment aspect needs to be de-emphasized. Make politics boring again, and a lot of the WWE voters will just go away. Um, and so that's, you know, really the answer to these 1% candidates. So this is our last uh, recording before uh, the uh, debate, which is going to be a week from today. And uh, and we will uh, join and have a conversation uh, the day after to sort of unpack everything that goes on. This has been Thunderdome, and we are guiding you through this insanity, which is not going to stop anytime soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>